Have you heard of the Gordian knot? It's a uh, reference to a ball of knots that are so interconnected that it is essentially beyond solving. Uh, A few times my daughter Addie brought me her necklace, and it was kind of like one of those Gordian knots, but not quite because I was able to actually untie it. Uh, Apparently the origin of the expression goes back to Alexander the Great uh, before he was a world conqueror. And I will read to you a a few paragraphs from history.com. As the story goes, in 333 BC, the Macedonian conqueror marched his army into the Phrygian capital of Gordium in modern-day Turkey. Upon arriving in the city, he encountered an ancient wagon, its yoke tied with what one Roman historian later described as several knots, all so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how they were fastened. Phrygian Tradition held that the wagon had once belonged to Gordius, the father of the celebrated King Midas. An oracle had declared that any man who could unravel its elaborate knots was destined to become ruler of all Asia. According to the ancient chronicler Arian, the impetus, uh, impetuous, excuse me, the impetuous Alexander was instantly seized with an ardent desire to untie the Gordian knot. After wrestling with it for a time and finding no success, he stepped back from the mass of gnarled ropes and proclaimed, It makes no difference how they are loosed. He then drew his sword and sliced the knot in half with a single stroke. <laughs> we, we are indeed at some complicated truths that we are to navigate through in these chapters of Romans, and we are not going to take out a sword and slice it down the middle to undo the mystery involved. Uh, I want for us to remember as we approach this text again uh, some truths that are important, and that is the thesis statement of this section is found in chapter 9 and verse 6. In the first part it says, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That is the thesis of this section. Very important to remember that. Because not only does the thesis set the stage, the conclusion in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, indicate the glorious response that Paul has to what he has just written. He says in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! And how inscrutable! His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's the conclusion of this section. The thesis is laid out. God's Word has not failed. God will accomplish His will. His Word is true. His promises are sure. He concludes by saying, God, You are amazing. You are uh, unmatched. You are glorious. You are, are, are worthy of praise. You're right. And I might not understand everything, but You're right. And I might not be Your counselor. I am a counselee. I will take Your counsel. That's how He ends this. There is a very positive theme from God and Paul's perspective that is intertwined through this text. And it's very important for us to remember that as we go through some of the difficulties. God is giving us assurance. He's giving us assurance that He is still saving 
people and working out His promises. That is uh, carried throughout this passage that God is still saving people and fulfilling His promises. Now, don't be deceived as you look around. Paul is thinking to himself, he looks around and says, where are all the, the Jews? All these promises. They're, they're the children of the promise. Where are all the Jews? Don't be deceived just because uh, you look around and don't see as many redeemed Israelites as you expect. This is the, the rationale now in verses 6-9. through nine. We studied this previously. God has established this pattern that not all physical offspring are spiritual offspring. So don't despair, Paul. Don't despair when you don't see everything coming along as you thought. God has already told us that not all the physical offspring are the spiritual offspring. As he gets to the next section, verses 10 through 13, we're phrasing it a little bit differently than last week, just for a different uh, angle of viewing it, not because last week was not accurate. God's promises are not about works, but grace. Verses 10 through 13. It's not, it's not about what Jacob did or what Esau did. It's about God and his grace and his mercy. And then you should get to verses 14 through 18. God issues mercy in accordance with his will. He makes that plain. He uses a couple of Old Testament illustrations uh, from the law. And he concludes that section by saying in verse 18 So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's what he tells us there. As we move to this next section, verses 19 through 24, and we're really not even going to touch on verse 24 because 24 is kind of like a hinge verse. It, it, it concludes this section and it starts the next section. We're only going to cover 19 to 23 uh, in, in, in our discussion and our study this morning. God demonstrates his character. God demonstrates his character. We're going to see that in this section. Look at verses 19 and following. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make, his, make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God demonstrates his character. Paul starts this section by starting to answer some objections that he may have heard to his teaching, maybe some that arise from within him even. How can anyone be blamed in verse 19? If, if God shows mercy on some and and he hardens some according to his will. How can he find fault with someone? And his answer to that is, an answer, is a question in verse 20. He says, oh, wait a second, who are you? And I love how he says, oh man. <laughs> who are you, buddy? Who are you, created being, to answer back to God? At what point is it that you are going to be the one who tells God what he ought to do and what he ought not to do? What exactly is wrong with you? Anyway, 
This comes from inspired writing. The Spirit of God is using Paul to answer that series of questions with a question that basically says, you do not have a right to argue with God. And then he proceeds to use an analogy or an illustration. Look again at verses 21 through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's a lot to be said here. In verse 21, he's talking about different vessels that are formed. Some vessels in a house are used to display beauty. So you fashion this vessel, and it's to hold flowers. You call it a... I call it a vase. You call it a vase. Because that's how you are. That's one type of vessel that's made. It's to beautify the house. You have another vessel that you, you form, and it's to hold the porterhouse stakes. Yes, you like that vessel. You have some other vessels in the house that hold your garbage. You form that. It's less glorious. It has a less honorable use. Not only do you have those kinds, you have dishpans. Those are less honorable. You don't put those out on display. But they have a a use. And you have other unmentionable vessels in your home. We're not going to talk about them here. But those are fashioned as well. Sometimes made of porcelain. You get the idea. We need all of these vessels in our homes because it makes the house run. And so one vessel has this use. Another has this use. One's on display. Another is maybe, you know, it's down the hall on the left. That's, that's the concept, honorable use and dishonorable use. Now, God uses this same potter illustration on a couple of occasions in the Old Testament. We're going to look at just one of them. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. It really is a, a spectacular passage, and we're only going to be able to be there for just a couple of moments. But in this passage, God uses the potter analogy with regard to Cyrus, king of Persia. God makes it clear through this passage that Cyrus does not know God. And that God, even though Cyrus doesn't know him, that God is using Cyrus, even in his unbelief, to accomplish God's purposes. So let's take a look beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 45. I want you to notice what God is telling us about Cyrus, what he is, what God is going to tell us about what God is going to do with that piece of clay, and what God is ultimately going to accomplish through that piece of clay. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, Cyrus, you unbeliever, and I will level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, The God of Israel, who call you by name, 
For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. God is using an unbeliever for His own purposes, for the sake of His people. He's calling His people Jacob and Israel, His chosen ones. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides Me. There is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know Me. Why? That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside Me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open uh, that salvation and righteousness may, may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed you, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He, Cyrus, shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. All right? Unbelieving king, God is accomplishing what? He's going to set his people free. He's going to bring them back to their city. The city's going to be rebuilt. The temple's going to be rebuilt. It's all going to be done. God is doing this for his people to accomplish his purposes using an unbeliever. And he has every right to do that. He has every right to do that. That's the concept that we see back in Romans chapter 9 to convey that God is the potter and he has a right to make one to be used in one way and one to be used in another way. So let's head back there to Romans chapter 9. Back in Romans chapter 9, what are the purposes of the potter in this analogy in Romans 9? What are the purposes? Listen carefully. If there are some people who are going to reject the gospel of God's mercy and grace as it is so clear in Scripture, why did God make these people? Why not only create those would be saved. Well, verse 22 lists for us three character traits of God that are on display through those who reject God's gracious offer of salvation. Verse 22 lists for us three character traits of God that are put on display because of those who reject God's gracious offer of salvation. So look at verse 22 with me. Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known 
His power. Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Wrath. God displays His wrath. This is not, this is not new to Romans chapter 9. This is not the first time that God has de- demonstrated in His character that He does not allow those who are not innocent, those who are guilty, to go unpunished. In God's introduction of Himself, we looked at a little bit of it last week, in God's introduction of Himself to Moses, when He declares how gracious He is and merciful He is and long-suffering He is, it's wonderful. We all love that part of it. But as He continues His description of Himself, He says by no means clearing the guilty and causing the iniquity of the fathers to be visited on the third and the fourth generation. Oh, can't we just skip over that part? Let's just take out the sword. The Gordian knot will be over. We'll just... Done. Mystery solved. It would be easy to do that, but we would be dishonoring to God by ignoring what He says about Himself. That's not the only place... In the book of Romans, God has already given us a sense, a sense of this character trait of His, this perfection of His, of wrath. In chapter 1, Paul went to great lengths to caution his readers. Who were they? Us. Right? To caution his readers about God's wrath that comes upon those who are sinners. In that context, back in Romans chapter 1, he already taught that we have all witnessed the creation of God's marvelous hands, that God has brought the world into existence, that everyone can see His eternal power and Godhead as they see what God has made. And he follows this up with this statement. This is in Romans 1.21. It will be on the screens. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on to tell us that because they exchanged the glory of God for that which was created, they exchanged the glory of God for that which God created. So instead of worshiping the Creator, They worship the Creator. Does that sound anything like the fact that they hardened themselves? They did. God reveals Himself in glory. And people say, no, no, there's a big bang. I actually have as my ancestor some primordial ooze. I prefer to think that I came from monkeys than to prefer to think that I came from a Creator God. People harden themselves. And then in that passage, back in Romans chapter 1, in verse 24, 26, and 28, three times it says, God gave them up. God gave them up. They hardened themselves, and God confirmed that hardness. The result of this sinfulness 
and this display of their rejection of God is that the wrath of God comes down what? On the children or the sons of disobedience. That His wrath is revealed against those who are ungodly and unrighteous. He's already told us this. So when we come to Romans chapter 9 and we see people that are dishonorable by rejecting God, who have hardened themselves and thus become hardened by God, it it should be of no surprise to us that God's wrath is a result. But God is giving us an explanation about why is it that when God created all these people and He knew These people are going to believe and these people are going to reject Him. Why not just create these people and not those people? Because God has purposes to reveal His glorious person. And so you want to ask Him a question about that. You can go back to verse 20 and say, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Not only does God reveal His his wrath through this process, He reveals His power. Now there's a lot to that. We don't have time to dive into the all of the implications, but just to to get a little sense of it, this term God making known His power is related to God's wrath. It's related to what He's already told us. At the end of the age, and I think about this, when our Savior is ruling the world, the Bible tells us He's going to rule it with a rod of iron. He's going to rule with power. And His power and His authority will be on full display. Anyone here ready for that? I'm going to put my hand up. I'm ready for that. Let's let's see the Lord in all His glory ruling visibly on this earth. I want to be there and I can't wait to serve Him there. I am gloriously looking forward to that day when His power is on display like this. There will be no outbreaks of injustice in His kingdom. And when it comes to God's eternal kingdom, listen carefully, there is nothing that will enter into that eternal kingdom that is defiled. But only that which through His power has been made completely holy and righteous. That's another one of those statements that I think we just need to take a moment and chew on. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is God your Father? Do you have a certainty that one day you will spend eternity in His presence without break, without stopping, fullness of joy forever? Do you know yourself to be in that kind of a relationship with God? Yes? If that's true of you, you have experienced the power of God taking a dead person and making them alive. This is why Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. That's power. Power on display. The same thing in Titus chapter 2. It's not by works of, uh, chapter 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to His Mercy that He saved us. How did He do it? By washing of water and the renewing or the regeneration 
of the Holy Spirit. God in His power making me a broken vessel who deserves to be separated from Him forever. A sinner who has rejected Him in my, in my early years and He took me from rejection and He made me alive. This is the power of God. People can't create this. Only God. So we're talking about God's power on display. This kingdom is coming when we're, we're, we're going to be there. Those that know Jesus Christ as Savior are going to be there and there'll be nothing impure because everything there will have been made pure by the power of God. This implies the powerful demonstration of judgment upon all that has not been redeemed. This is a harsh reality. And God says, if you have your thoughts about how I should do things, but if I don't display for you my power in certain ways, you would not know my power. The glory of salvation lies in a God who purposed, a God who accomplished through Christ, and a God who applies that through the Holy Spirit. God wills it, the Father. The Son does it. The Spirit applies it. That's the power of God on display. While the wrath of God is being displayed through this situation, the power of God is on display. In the meantime, God is demonstrating something else to us in verse 22. And that's His patience. Look again at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Patience. It's a very interesting expression. Has endured with much patience. You've heard the song. He's got the whole world in His hand. It's actually, this verse is actually giving an implication to that concept. He uses the word pharaoh for has endured. Pharaoh. Now, the word pharaoh is used twice in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. That will be on the screen for you. Where it says, For no prophecy was ever produced, there's the first use of pharaoh, was, was ever pr- produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, what does that say? Carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this idea of Pharaoh is the idea of carrying along. And it's almost like you can see this word picture that God injects into this other word picture, which is this. What if God, willing to display these things, has held in His hand, has held in His hand, carried along the universe and everything in it, including those that have rejected Him and rebelled against Him. God has been carrying along the created universe, even specifically those who have rejected Him. What character trait produces that willingness to carry this along? And that's the term patience. Patience. It comes from the Greek term makrothumia. We sometimes call it long-suffering. So God's long-suffering, listen carefully to this, God's long-suffering is an amazing attribute that we would not understand apart from His willingness to endure the sinful rebellion of man. I want you to think about that for a moment because it's at the heart of this discussion. 
We would not understand God's long-suffering if God didn't carry along the world with all those that have rebelled and rejected Him and waited in a, in a patient manner with Him. We wouldn't understand long-suffering if God didn't endure this, this process. One of the greatest illustrations of God's long-suffering with man's sinfulness is illustrated during the days of Noah. And I want for you to turn there with me, please. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to come back here to Romans in a little bit. But Genesis chapter 6. You see this demonstration of God's patience in these days of Noah. We're going to start reading in verse 5 of Genesis 6. God's Word says, "The The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was what? Great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Has God made his point? He really went to lengths to to demonstrate to us just how rebellious all the thoughts of every man on the face of the earth was wicked perpetually. Everyone feels it? Okay. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Will you read verse 8 with me? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or I prefer grace, but that's Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this, all the thoughts and intentions of every man's heart was only wicked continually. God says, This isn't working properly. This is not, this is not the design. This is, this is going off the rockers. This is not. Perfect. When I finished creating everything, I was able to say, and everything I saw, it was very good. And man has rebelled, rejected, and turned aside to his own whims and desires. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God calls Noah to build an ark of gopher wood. I'm glad I don't have to read the King James Version of that. It's hard to say. Verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, uh, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So there's the scenario of God calling for this ark to be built. And now the New Testament adds to us a couple of little nuggets for our understanding in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. In 1 Peter, it talks about how God patiently waited in the days of Noah. And in 2 Peter, God calls Noah a herald of righteousness. 
So during those days that Noah was building the ark, we don't exactly know how many exact days it took, but it was a long time. He's building this ark, and while he's doing it, he is heralding. What's another word for herald? Anyone? Anyone? Preach! (laughs) He's preaching righteousness. He's calling for a world to turn to God. He's telling them that God is sending a judgment for the perpetual evil and wickedness of man. There's, there's an escape here. It'll be here. You'll be able to load yourself up on the ark. Yeah, yeah, whatever, Noah. But God patiently waited while Noah preached and built. And when Noah was completed and God was ready... In the fullness of time, God sent forth the rains, and God closed the door of the ark. God patiently waited with man that in that moment. And you know, God has patiently waited with man since the beginning. Here are Adam and Eve with all the beautiful things that God created for them. God gives them direct revelation, face-to-face fellowship, communion, with him gives them a very clear and very easy command to obey. And they said, nah, we have a different thought. We're going to do it a different way than you have told us. And God endured. And God, as you remember, made clothing for them out of animal skin. Hint, hint, hint. God killed an animal in place of them. Hint, hint, hint. God's mercy. God's grace and a foreshadowing of things to come. God endured. God endured Noah. God endured uh, Abraham. God endured Isaac. God endured Jacob. God endured Moses. God endured all the people of Israel in their continuous rebellion. God endured. God endured. God endured. God patiently dealt with man waiting for the right time to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive based upon His grace, the adoption of sons. God waited. The way that Paul expresses that waiting in Romans 3 is like this. In Romans 3.25, whom God put forward, speaking of Jesus, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine... we say that word with me? Forbearance. That's the word. That's patience. In His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. So you know, as we think about these things, and they're, they're still hard, no matter how much you look at it, no matter how much you try to, to wrestle with it, they're still hard. If they're not hard, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what's... I'm not sure if you're being honest, if they're not hard for you to read through those passages, but they're hard. We learn God's glorious nature through the sinful rejection of man. Head back there, please, to to Romans 9. Now, we want to see something that's very important. And there are obviously different ways of interpreting what we're about to talk about. You might think differently than I do. That's that's between you and the Lord. You stand accountable for how you understand the Scriptures. I'm going to stand accountable for how I understand and proclaim the Scriptures. So, uh, you might disagree with how I convey this. You've got to judge from the Scriptures the truth. There is an important contrast between verses 22 and 23 that we need to gather before we observe the next character trait that God reveals 
uh, in this passage. God's demonstration of His wrath, power, and patience comes through His dealings with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay? This is a contrast. God's demonstration of His wrath, power, and patience comes through His dealings with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Secondly, God's demonstration of the riches of His glory is demonstrated through His dealings with the vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So just for a moment, either at your, in your Bible or at the screen, look at the quoted sections. We want to start to think about what, what is it that makes a contrast. I'll give you a moment and then I'll start to talk through it. The way that these phrases are constructed grammatically is very telling. So in verse 22, you have the word prepared. Prepared. Here's the technical part. It is a perfect, middle passive participle. Okay? That's the technical thing. Now we'll just kind of work our way through what in the world a perfect passive, uh, middle passive participle might be. Perfect tense. This is an action completed in the past. Done. With continuing results. That's the emphasis of a perfect tense. Past tense action that's completed that has continuing results. Now we move to the voice of a verb. We don't really talk about the voice of a verb too, too much in our day and age. Um, but it's important in this. This speaks to who is performing the action of the verb or verbal. Okay? We have a middle passive, which means it could either be a middle or it could be a passive. So let's talk about it for a moment. Let's have fun. An active verb is this. Rob is hitting the ball. Got my bat. Rob is hitting the ball. I am acting on the ball. Active. Everyone clear on that? It's pretty easy. Passive. Rob is being hit by the ball. Ouch! Pitcher throws the ball. It's coming at me. Hits me. I've been acted upon. Passive. Middle passive. Uh, excuse me, middle voice. We don't really have in the English. Here's what it would be. Rob is hitting himself with the bat. <laughs> Not very smart, but that's what it would be. So we've got the active, passive, middle. All right. This verb, prepared, is a middle passive, which means it has the same ending in either the middle voice or the passive voice, so it can be either one, so it's up for interpretation. Does that make sense? All right. So that leaves us with a couple of options about what this thing could be saying. These people, these vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Who's doing this action? That's the question in, in our discussion right now. So, because it's not active, it's not the person that's speaking or the subject of the portion. So in my interpretation of this, God is not the actor in this. Now again, you may disagree. That is, you have to decide that. Um, but it's a passive verb. If, if, it's, if it's passive, it can mean this. Ready? Because of Adam's sin, sin and death have spread to all mankind. Being born in sin, 
prepares one for the wrath of God. That's one way you can read that passage, okay? So you're reading along, and you've got these vessels, and this vessel is prepared passively for destruction. Well, how is it passively? Well, sin and death have passed upon all, for that all have sinned, and we know that sin results in eternal judgment. That's one way to read that. That's fine. Um, it's, a, it's an acceptable reading. If it's a middle voice, here's the other option. Because we are not only sinners by birth, but sinners by choice, the vessels of wrath can be said to have prepared themselves for destruction. So, what they have done is, no God, no God, no God, I'll do my own thing, I'll go my own way, I have a better way, I have a better plan, I'm doing this. So they choose, they harden, God confirms their hardness, they've prepared themselves for destruction. I would lean toward that latter second thought, for not only have we confirmed that we are sinners through our actions, we also understand, listen carefully to this, we also understand that those who, have experienced, who will experience the wrath of God, listen carefully to this expression, have disobeyed the gospel. Listen to what God says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Speaking about the arrival of, the, of the, the judge, the Lord Jesus, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those, will you read the rest with me? who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They have fit themselves for destruction. They have prepared themselves for destruction. Sinners by birth, sinners by choice, and rejecting what God has offered to them in the gospel. On the other hand, we've got a contrast. In verse 22, we have these vessels preparing themselves for judgment. Then in verse 22, we have something different. We have God wanting to display the riches of His glory... For whom? The vessels that are made for mercy, the vessels of mercy. Listen carefully to how this one reads. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is a completely different expression than we just experienced. So let's talk about this verb for just a moment. The word he has prepared is an aorist tense. Aorist tense is a past tense verb. But it points to a particular point in time. It doesn't talk about the duration or the consequences or the result. It's just pointing back to a particular point in time. Aorist tense. God has prepared. That's all it's saying. Very simple. Aorist, it's active in its voice, which means God is acting upon the vessels of mercy. It's an indicative uh, which means it's the, it, it's, it, this is just a statement of fact. It's not like um, dependent on anything else. It's just a statement. God has prepared the vessels of mercy for glory. That's what it's telling us. When we were born, we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, I didn't just make that up. That's from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. We were part of those who had fallen short of the glory of God. I didn't make that up. That's Romans 3.23. All of us reside in both of those locations. Those are true of us. But God, through His sovereign goodness, 
and kindness has taken us, broken vessels deserving of wrath, and He has made us fit for glory. And this displays God's glorious nature. Look at verse 23 again. He, he with much patience endured, verse 22, endured. He with much patience sat through and waded through and, and was patient with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to display or make known what? The riches of His glory that He has in store for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. This display of God's glory is, is solely something that God can do. We cannot fit ourselves for heaven, no matter what we try. John makes this abundantly clear. Let's, let's look. Let's see the words of God through the Apostle John in John chapter 1. These are very familiar verses. Can I ask you, as, you, as we read these verses that are so familiar to you, let God use His Word and His Spirit to teach you even the truths that are so common and clear on display here. John 1, starting in verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who's making them fit for glory? God. Who makes them alive? God. It's not because I'm from Adam. It's not because I'm from Abraham. It's not because I'm from Isaac. It's not because I'm from Jacob. It's not from blood. It's not from my steely-eyed will. I just kept on clawing after God until He finally let me. No man seeks after God. We talked about that last week. God graciously opens my eyes to see His glorious Gospel goes out and only He can make a person turn from darkness to light. I can't. I want to. If I could do it for you, I would die trying. But only God brings people from death to life. Listen to this in Colossians 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, that's made you fit, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Why have so many rejected God and fit themselves for destruction? God doesn't leave this mysterious to us either. Back in Romans chapter 9, the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Here's God's Son. He sent Him in the flesh, the Messiah. They were looking for Him. Looking for Him. He comes. 
He does exactly what the Old Testament said he was going to do in, in the book of Isaiah. He was preaching the good news. He was healing people. All these things that he said he was going to do, he did in their presence. And they said, yeah, not you. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's for the Jews. How about for the Gentiles? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 answers that. They say, well, that's foolish. The cross is fit for despicable people, criminals that aren't even Roman citizens. They're for non-humans. Non-entities. And your, your Messiah, your Savior is on a cross? What are you thinking? Foolishness. Stumbling block for the Jews. Folly for the Gentiles. What's the problem? No God. You're not going to tell me. You're not going to tell me. I do it myself. That's what the little kiddies say. You get a little bit of independence, I do it myself. That's what we're so many in our society. I, I do it myself. I find my own way through this life. God has offered his salvation. No. No. Oh, what do we do about this? Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without an answer. Take a look at Romans chapter 10. What do we do about this? The Jews say it's a stumbling block. The Gentiles say it's folly. What do we do? Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Listen carefully. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us. Listen carefully. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We believe that God is able to use His Word to produce spiritual life. Did you come to know Jesus? Did you? Have you come to know Jesus as your only Lord, your only God, your only Savior? Have you? Was it because someone told you a sweet little story about a doggy that was very, very sweet and the, and the little boy that, that gave up his doggy and it was, you know, he's twice mine now? Was it the story? Stories don't save. Oh, was it your spectacular testimony? Oh, I, I was, you know, I was really bad and now I'm really good and look at me. I can save you. You're not saving anybody. How do you get saved? you found out you were a sinner. Where'd you figure that out? Well, I kind of knew this. my conscience was bearing witness with me that I had a problem. But I heard that sin is a problem before a holy God. And so I realized I better deal with this. I found out that God sent His Son. What'd you find out about that? Well, someone told me. But you know what they were telling you? What the Bible has to say. The Bible says, for the Word of God is living and active. Living and active. It, it gives life and it, it blows things up. It changes. It, it breaks the stony heart. And it lights in flame all the chaff. The, 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 the weeds. 
The Bible tells us in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what do we do? We plant, right? We plant. And we take out our little hose or our watering can and we water. You ready for this? But only God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. The offer of God's salvation is held out to you today. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God offers to you today the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you come to Him in faith and receive forgiveness and righteousness and what God says in verse 23 of Romans 9, and glory. Will you receive from Him the glory that you fell short of on your own? This is the offer that He holds out to you today. Believer, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. While we have breath within us, we want to offer to people that we encounter, we want to offer to them an opportunity to experience the riches of His glory. By doing what? Holding forth the Word of life. Tell them what God has done to obtain their salvation. Not everyone's going to listen, right? That's what Isaiah recognized. Paul experienced it. Jesus experienced it. We have experienced it. But you know what the glory of this passage is? Some of them will. Some of them will. God is saving people. And it's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on Him. He can get that job done. So we preach. We preach with clarity. We preach with confidence. And we preach with awe about what He will do for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to love You more. To trust You more. Work in us and through us to hold out before people your glorious good news of the Gospel found in Jesus Christ. And may we see men, women, and children turning from their sin and turning to Jesus Christ to receive from you forgiveness, to receive from you righteousness, to receive from you glory and eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.